Hello, friends. This is Jonah part three, and it's titled, Hold On, It Worked? Because this is uh, part three, obviously, of four parts of going through the book of Jonah. And my name is John. I was trained as a pastor, and this is one of the ways I'm trying to put that education to good use. So thank you for listening. Thank you for checking in. We are going to read the chapter after the famous whale incident. And uh, what I would like to do is we are just going to read through Jonah chapter 3. And then we're going to pause every so often. I'm going to make a comment or two. And then we'll wrap it on up with some points at the end. But what I hope is that by the end of going through Jonah, you will see that this entire book has been oversimplified, I guess. And we tend to think that it has only to do with a whale when it's so much more than that. In fact, I think that the book of Jonah is a case of masterful storytelling. It is just incredible. So thank you for checking this out. Thank you for listening. Let's do a quick recap, and then we will go into Jonah 3, okay? So Jonah 1. Jonah is called out by God to go speak a word to his worst enemies, the people of Nineveh. And so he's called to be a prophet in that sense. And instead of going where he should, he gets on a boat and goes the other way. He's hit by a storm, and he tells the people to throw him overboard, probably because he's depressed. Then, while in the surging water, a whale comes up and swallows him, a hadag hagadol in the original Hebrew, which really just means the big, the fish. However, he's in the whale for three days, and we don't know what tone he says some of his prayers in that chapter in. We don't know what, what state he's in when he's in there. Is he being sarcastic? Is he being serious? We have no clue and then at the end of chapter two after he gives this potentially sarcastic prayer we have no idea uh he gets spit back up on dry land and that's where we pick up right here so once again thank you for checking this out let's go into chapter three then The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. (laughs) By the way, and there's no mention of the whale ever again in the rest of the book. So apparently what we think is the high point of the book apparently isn't to the original audience. Verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Okay. Pause. This is how the book should have started, right? Jonah then, this is verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Like I said, here is Jonah finally getting around to doing the thing that he should have done at the beginning of this entire book. Half of the book 
of Jonah is him not doing the task that's given to him. Chapters 1 and 2. And so chapter 3 is kind of like a new chapter 1 of him finally doing the thing that he was supposed to do. Nineveh is supposed to be a massive city that takes three days to walk through it. And so that's just one way of trying to categorize to the audience how big of a city this is. And just in case you didn't know, cities that big didn't exist often back then. So Nineveh is a capital of the Assyrian Empire. This is a big deal. Jonah is not just being told to go to a small town or village. He's told to go to the big city, the big one of it all. Continuing, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So he walks a third of the way into the city. He hasn't quite hit the halfway point, which might be about where the king is, but he is at least a third of the way into the city. <laughs> and this is where we've got to ask a really quick question. Did you notice that it took 40 days before destruction might come? Anytime that we pay attention to numbers in the Hebrew scriptures, we've got to ask ourselves, why was it that many days? And can you think of any other event in Hebrew scriptures that might have something to do with the days with 40 days. Possibly there's a roundabout reference in there to the flood story where Noah is on his ark for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know. There might be something happening there. You can take with that what you want. But verse 5 is where it gets funny. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Nineveh here repents and turns back to God faster than the Israelites ever did. Remember, if you go back uh, in chapter 1, the pagan sailors that throw Jonah overboard when he asks to be thrown overboard they repented as well. They turned back to the God of this prophet faster than this prophet did. This is subversive storytelling. This is supposed to be shock and awe that's happening. Because this is something close to... Think of... Uh, Man, just, I guess, any nationality. Think of the worst people that you can think of and then maximize <laughs> your worst enemies out to filling an entire city and then imagine that city repents and puts on sackcloth and ashes, which was a, an old way of lamenting of one's own actions. Nineveh turns faster than the Israelites ever did. And this, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny. I'm not quite sure if this is supposed to sting a little bit. But we have to remember, the book of Jonah was passed down 
among Israelites, among the Jewish people. And so what does it say that they decided to keep this bewildering story of Jonah, even though it had their worst enemies look more pious than them? You see what I mean? There's a a common trait among people. You tend not to want to remember your bad days of your life. You also tend not to pay attention to the things that make you look bad. But here is a story of the worst enemies looking better than the original audience, the Israelites. So man, the city turns. Let's pick it up at verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This means not just people in the town, not just people in the city, not just people in the marketplace. Word eventually spread all the way to the top office in Nineveh. It even got its way to the king, the king of the worst enemies of the Israelites, puts on sackcloth and ashes and sits down in the dirt and laments of his own actions. Oh, man, even the king repents. Verse 7, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. This is what the king said. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds, or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that he so that we will not perish. Pause. Okay. There's three categories that are happening here. One, the city starts to repent. Two, the king starts to repent. Then three, even more, the king decrees that even the animals need to fast and repent. This whole story has now entered the realm of just crazy. And you could maybe say this is perhaps a gamble on the part of Nineveh. They're throwing everything that they can into turning around Teshuvah, repenting of what's going on and the things that they've been doing so that they can avoid destruction. So remember, it's some people in the town start repenting. Then the king repents, and then he tells that everyone should repent, including the animals. Even the animals in that passage are told to fast and to purposefully put aside food to remember diligently with every hunger pang that they've got to turn their lives around. This is the only book of which I'm aware of in all of the Hebrew scriptures where animals repent. In fact, depending on what translations you're looking at, it might say, well, let me look at it, (laughs) actually. 
Mm. Oh, it does just say animals. No, no, no. It says animals, herds, or flocks. So that could be cows. It could be goats. It could be sheep. Don't let any of those things taste. Even they have to fast. So this might be an instance of what they call hyperbole, which is what we like to say when somebody's an exaggerating storyteller. Regardless or not, this would have been really fun to listen to for the original audience. And finally, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. That's it. Chapter 3 is the shortest chapter in uh, the book of Jonah. So now we're just going to unpack it for a bit now that we've read through the whole thing and had a few comments along the way. At the very end here, we have Jonah is referenced in the early passages and the rest of the chapter is about how Nineveh's townspeople, Nineveh's king, and then even Nineveh's animals fast and repent so that they can avoid destruction. Now, what we have here is what some people might think is an archaic, backwards way of getting people to improve their lives. So, for instance, right here we have a passage where God says that he will bring destruction on people if they don't turn their ways. Many people look back at some of the Hebrew scriptures and say, that is really backwards. That's really primitive. But you know what? According to some of us in our own stages of development, sometimes the threat of punishment is the only thing that gets our attention. Sometimes, uh, if you think about it like a little kid, you have to tell them, don't say those words or don't pick on other people or we're going to put you in time out. That is using punishment as a motivation to get them to do what is good. Now, that, that's it. that is an early stage of development when the reward-punishment mindset helps us to keep our own actions in line. However, we do recognize that later on in life or maybe in later stages of development, we come to learn to love doing the right thing because we just love the right thing not because we're trying to avoid punishment. So what I want to say is it's just a part of everyone's developmental stages. You probably at some point would have been pretty motivated to do what is right out of fear of punishment. And then maybe you grew out of that or maybe you still feel that way sometimes that you do what is right because you don't want to be punished. But here we have a whole city and it's king. We have a whole group of people here who are, in one sense, in an early stage of life where the threat of punishment might have been the only thing capable of getting them to turn their lives around. So I just want to put that caveat out there. Don't dismiss parts of the Bible, especially this part of the story, because it sounds primitive that God has to threaten people with destruction in order to get them to do what is right. Because you were the same way, and I was the same way at five years old. 
And maybe some of us need to have that threat of punishment reminded to us in order to keep us doing what is good. So that being said, let's just uh, wrap it up, okay? This is going to be a relatively shorter quote episode. Here's four things to pay attention to. Number one, God apparently doesn't keep account of wrongs. I heard it once said that you need to know that in the divine economy of grace, God doesn't give second chances. Have you ever heard that? God doesn't give second chances. In fact, he only ever gives a first chance and a first chance and a first chance and a first chance because God's not keeping count. There's no reason for God to give a second chance chance because he always gives first chances. He doesn't keep account of wrongs. And here in this book, the fact that Jonah ran in the opposite direction is never brought up in chapter three. This anti-prophet who ran from his job doesn't have the fact that he failed at his job and avoided his job held over him. In the divine economy of grace, God only gives first chance after first chance after first chance after first chance. Mm. Two, second thing to pay attention to. In early parts of this chapter, when it says that then he obeyed the word of the Lord, it means even more. Because let's say Jonah went... And this book starts at chapter 3. And you have no idea of the whole incident with the storm and the boat and the whale. And it just says he went and obeyed and then he went and preached. The storytelling element of this book would not be as good because it doesn't have him being an anti-prophet for the first two chapters. But it does put some extra weight on the word, then he obeyed. Because you and I... We know the backstory, and we know that Jonah wrestled with that obey, and in fact, half of the book of Jonah is what happened with him not obeying the first time. So don't skip over the word obeyed when it comes up in different parts, because there could have been a prior struggle or an interior debate as towards whether or not somebody should fulfill the calling that was put on them. Number three, and this is, I, I think it's supposed to be comical. I think it is supposed to be uh, something that digs a little bit into the audience. That the worst enemies of this book, the Ninevites, repent both better and faster than the Israelites ever did. It says that they were given 40 days to turn everything around, and it doesn't say a time frame. It's almost as though as soon as the king heard this, he immediately issued a a decree. And so it seems to be that there's a recurring um, theme, I guess, in this book. That the sailors that weren't Israelites repented pretty quick. Then chapter 2, Jonah 
is maybe giving a mocking prayer, maybe not an honest one. But then here in chapter 3, the Ninevites repent better and faster. And they even brought their animals into it. That's the fourth thing. I really think that this story could have been easily told around a bonfire. You could easily see this being like a story that was told at a campground. And uh, it kind of makes sense because there's an entertainment value to this entire book of Jonah. There seems to be this element of um, hyperbole. There's recurring themes. and There's kind of recurring puns that happen all throughout. But it, it just seems as though uh, it's really trying to drive home a point that maybe we should stop and recognize that, you know what? We might think that we are the chosen and the beloved people, excuse me, of God. But what, what are we going to do with the fact that maybe our enemies know how to turn their lives around faster than we do? And I think that might be part of the pun in this entire book. And uh, conservatives and liberals tend to get really stuck in the historicity of the book of Jonah. But when they do that, they're actually avoiding dealing with the real content of the book because the real content isn't whether or not Jonah and the events of Jonah happened or not. Did animals really put on sackcloth and, and then not eat? For a number of days, can you imagine cows and sheep? Imagine shepherds trying to hold their flock back from eating the food. I mean, it's, it's comical, obviously. But there's something in it that when you start bickering about historicity, then you never get around to the content of, what if my enemies are potentially more pious than I am? or Or what if... My enemies know how to turn their lives around better. What, what, if, what if my enemies are actually more faithful than I am? You see, if you want to bicker and argue about the historicity of this book, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But on some level, you have to know that you might be subconsciously trying to avoid the real topic of do you really know how to repent? Do you really know how to turn your life around? Because maybe you shouldn't think so highly of yourself. Maybe you should stop and recognize that even the king of your worst enemies and then all of his livestock, maybe they know how to do faith better than you do. And that's a much more difficult question to wrestle with, to sit in. But I think that might be, I think that might actually be the real thesis, the real message, the real pun behind the book of Jonah. Not whether or not a man was swallowed by a whale, could survive, and then got spat back up. But yes or no, do you know how to give charity to your enemies and recognize that, you know what? Maybe they know how to do faith better than I do. And so maybe I should get off of my high horse and just resume a posture of humility, resume a posture of charity. I already said that one, but recognize that 
that God doesn't just love you. God also loves the people that you don't want him to love. And that might be part of what happened with Jonah. Jonah didn't want God to show grace or mercy or charity to the people that he didn't like. Do you know how to let God show grace and mercy and charity to the people that you hate, to the people that annoy you, to the people that really rub you wrong? That's a really good question. And I'm going to maybe say that we should finish with that one. So let me say it one more time. Yes or no? Let's word it a little differently though. Yes or no? Are you prone to getting in the way of good things happen to the people who you would call your enemy? Yes or no? Do you have a tendency to get in the way of good things coming to your enemies that help them turn their lives around? Because if you do (laughs) happen to enjoy getting in the way of your enemies turning their lives around, then you have to realize that you would be in really good company with Jonah as he is depressed and as he gets swallowed by a whale and as he gets put in his place because it's not up to us who grace comes to. So check yourself before you wreck yourself, all right? Instead, let yourself in your very being and at the core of who you are, may you take a posture of humility and charity and learn to be okay with God calling your enemies to turn their lives around. Thank you for listening. Check in next time because next Monday, we are going to be going through the final chapter of the book of Jonah. Thank you for listening. May grace and peace be with you.